are listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Forever Changed. We're looking at stories of people. We're looking at testimonies that we find in the text, or as I'm officially dubbing it, textimonies. <laughs> I got material like that for days, ladies and gentlemen, for days. We're looking at stories of people in the text trying to learn from their encounters with Jesus. Some people met Jesus in a moment and it changed their life forever. Some people walked with Jesus for years and obviously that shaped them and changed them in different ways. We have our own forever change. We want to... We want to walk through a series that enables us to look at those stories and consider what Jesus is doing in our lives, what Jesus has done in our lives, and just allow that to continue to shape and to change us. And so we looked at, we opened up the series a couple weeks ago looking at Mary of Magdala. And then uh, last week we got a journey through the story of Nicodemus. And today we're going to take a look at the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now... Um, let's actually just, uh, are you guys ready to rock and roll? Okay, excellent. I'm, I'm just going to jump into the text here. Let's read the story. Now Jesus learned that the parushim, say parushim, the Pharisees had heard that uh, he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to the Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That'd be nice, right? He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, 
I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And a little bit later in the story, we read the closing to this. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. I'd never until this week realized he stayed with the Samaritans for two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now, uh, I came to sermon discussion this week. Even prior to sermon club this week, I was all ready. I've studied this. I teach this to my students. I had all my research. I was ready to tell Emmy. This is Emmy Salisbury, by the way. Emmy. Yeah. I was ready to tell Emmy everything that I knew and get her all prepped up for the sermon. And uh, she showed up with a bunch of Jewish tradition and midrash and research that I had never bumped into and uh, blew my mind. So I'm just going to let her preach this. How about that? Fantastic. Emmy, tell us about the woman at the well, because I learned many things this week. All right. Well, we need to set up our story, um, of course, as this just lays a foundation of all the understanding. So we're going to look into the text and context. So first off, where are we at? We are in Samaria. Samaria is sandwiched right in between Jerusalem and the Galilee. So this would be a direct shot up from the people that want to get back and forth to these two major religious hubs. Well, the Samaritan people are not people that the Jews want to associate with. So the Jews would go ahead and add on an extra day's journey to go all the way around so that they did not have to enter the land of Samaria. And Marty, they had pretty good reason why they didn't want to go there. Yeah, they just did not. And there's a whole backstory in the text. But to give you an idea of the animosity in the days of Jesus, there was a Passover one year where the Samaritans took human bones and strewed them in the temple courts during Passover. Now, if you know anything about the Levitical law, nothing makes something more unclean than human corpse bones. Like that's, that's worse than pig bones. That's, that is the worst thing you can do. During the highest holiday of that spring season, the Samaritans went into the temple courts and strewed, he, like this is the kind of animosity that exists between Jews and Samaritans. They don't go to each other's barbecues. No, and the Jews would look at the Samaritan people and say they are less than dogs. Like dogs had more right and more honor than the Samaritan people. We also are finding ourselves at noon in the story. This is not the time that you go draw water. This is a very laborious task. Um, we're gonna dive into the context a little bit more about why that's so. Um, but this is something that the women usually do early morning, late afternoon. It's a very social event. Um, they plan you know, the whole water cooler thing. This is something that the women would go and do together. Um, and for Jesus to be sitting there at the well with this woman at noon, people would start to like raise their eyebrows. There would be a lot of questions like, this, this only happens for another reason, and it's not a reason that we would find Jesus putting himself into, but here we have this story that he is at noon at the well with a single woman. We also see that she brings up two very like kind of out of the blue things. She just kind of uh, hinges her whole argument on two things. One is that 
Jacob. Here we, like she just keeps bringing back Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Well, to the Samaritan people, Jacob is who they base Messiah off of. That's who they're gonna find their savior from is someone just like Jacob or Jacob coming back. Um, So Jacob is a huge story, a huge piece of our story today. She also is kind of hung up on the fact that he doesn't have a bucket. Like you go to the well, what are you gonna put your water in? He's not carrying a bucket. But as we dive into more of our story, we have a very good reason why she is questioning why he doesn't have a bucket. It first shows up in Genesis. So we're gonna read the text and find out maybe what's happening at Jacob's well. Yeah, so she's hung up on these two ideas, uh, the person of Jacob and the fact that Jesus is lacking a bucket. So let's go to the story of Jacob uh, to set some context. Because this isn't just any well. And it's not just that the Samaritans love Jacob. It's that they're standing at the well of Jacob. This is Jacob's well, the well of Jacob. Like this is a huge, huge, this isn't just a well. This is a very, very important well. So let's read the story about this well in Genesis 29. Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the Eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Shepherds are usually women in the ancient world, almost always. You have some patriarchs that oversee the shepherding, but the people that are actually doing the work with the flocks are usually female shepherds. This stone is large enough that you're going to have to use multiple people to roll this stone away. So when these female shepherds gather all their flocks together, so they only have to do it once, they can water all their flocks, they can put the stone back, because it's gonna take uh, many hands to do this task. And they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, which actually isn't a male term, it's used in a general, it means my kin. My kin, female and male. My kin, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? (laughs) He's got puns. Get that? Yeah. Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said. By the way, Rachel is a female being a shepherd. Okay, look, he said, the sun is still high and it's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. I think Jacob wants some alone time with Rachel at the well. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with the father's sheep for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel's daughter of his uncle Levon and Levon's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rivka, so she ran and told her father. So did you guys catch what Jacob did there? Like normally it takes three people to remove this stone. Jacob is so overcome. Tradition says that Jacob was so overcome, it was almost like he was drunk on love for Rachel that he removed the the top, the stone from the well as one would remove the stopper on a flask. Like hormones and adrenaline are surging with this guy. There is nothing that's gonna keep him in the way of impressing his woman. 
Um, but even more than that, we, when we dive into Midrash and tradition, we're gonna find out that there's even more to uncover. This is a deep well, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> that we are gonna draw from. Um, and what, what would be super helpful today, Marty, for us is let's set up um, what is Midrash? What is this tradition that we're gonna kind of dive into? Yeah, so Midrash, if you've been with us before, we've talked about it. Some of you have probably picked up on it. Many of you might be newer to the conversation or just still need that review. Midrash is essentially ancient Eastern Jewish commentary. So today, if Josh or Emmy or I or anybody else, Rod, if we want to prepare for a sermon, a lot of times what preachers will do is they'll go to a commentary. It's a Western commentary. It's a commentary written from our world and our perspective and our point of view. Thousands of years ago, they didn't write commentaries. What they, their commentary was that they would tell stories about the story, and it's their form of commentary. To be clear, Midrash is not scripture. We, we would not say Midrash is inspired, it's not authoritative, it's not in the same category as scripture, but it is their form of commentary. And that's important for two reasons. Number one, if I wanna study the text, I may want to read the people that got, that got a 2,000 year head start on it, like they may have some insight, nobody chuckled at that, but they may have some insight that we don't have having studied it for 2,000 years, more than we have. The second reason is some of these stories, like the one Emmy's about to share with you, predate the Gospels. The story that Emmy's gonna share with you is Midrash that predates the Gospels by 100 years. Meaning this woman at the well probably knows, I'm not going to say probably, from the story, she knows the story you're about to hear, and that makes it completely relevant to interpreting John chapter 4. So go ahead and tell us more about the story. Yeah, absolutely. And what's even more interesting is that here um, in the Midrash tradition, they're laying out that uh, Jacob is in the middle of these five miracles. Where are we reading the story in John? We're reading it smack dab in the center of Jesus's seven miracles. Which John has pointed out. Absolutely. This, like one of John's threads is how many signs Jesus has done. We've counted yes. seven before. Yep. And Jacob, there's a story about Jacob having five. Yes. Okay. Yes. So let's dive into the Midrash. This is the fourth miracle that is happening. Five miracles were brought up for our father Jacob at the time that he went forth from Beersheba the fourth sign, the well overflowed and the water rose to the edge of it and it continued to overflow all the time he was in Haran. Every time Jacob gets close to this well, it overflows. Which means he doesn't need what? Andy? He doesn't need a bucket. He does not need a bucket. Um, and so she's picking up on this. She knows the story. She's picked up that here's a Jewish man. He is sitting at the well. Jacob's well, who was a Jewish man, and when that happened, the well overflowed. These miracles were happening. She starts to put two and two together. She says, what are you doing, a Jew, sitting here at the well? And he's like, yeah, yep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You don't need the water that you're here for at the well. I have water just like Jacob's well, the miracle that happened at Jacob's well, I have that. And they have this banter back and forth. And Jesus is trying, like he, what he's putting down, she is not picking up. He is chasing after her heart so hard. And she's just deflecting, just like, no, nah. like, help me understand, I wanna get understanding. And he's like, 
I want your heart. I want you to know that I'm everything you need. You don't need a bucket when you find me at the well. And so, like, she's not having any of it. She does not want to have any personal conversation, so she brings the trump card of all trump cards, and she starts laying down theology. Help me understand this. And she brings up mountains. And Marty, she has a pretty good reason, and an, you, got, you have an, uh, an answer for why she's bringing up mountains. Yeah, she... And, and I've experienced this before, and probably some of you have experienced this too with friends or family. I, I know in the ministry, having done pastoral ministry now for almost 20 years, um, like one of the most common things, you get people to this moment where Jesus is like working on their life and he's got them right to that moment where they're about ready to like have to face the thing. Like one of our, what is one of our rules in home groups, right? No rescuing. Like if those of you that are in home groups, we say don't rescue. Why do we say that? Because when you get somebody right to that moment where Jesus is about ready to grab them and do something, spiritually shake them by the shoulders, the last thing you want to do is pull them out of that moment. Like oftentimes we'll get to that and we'll just deflect. We'll be like, like I don't want to see. And so all of a sudden in this moment where Jesus is like, ah, I've got living water for you. I'm not here for physical. I got, I got, I got water that you really need. And she's like, well, what about mountains? And they have this theological disagreement because in Samaria, you don't worship in Jerusalem. Remember, Jews and Samaritans don't get along. So there is no temple in Jerusalem for Samaritans. So they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. And she wants to know, well, which mountain is it? Like, you're trying to get to my heart. Well, who's got it right? Is it Jerusalem or Gerizim? And what I love about this, I find this so interesting. There's an answer to her question. Like a biblical answer. Listen, I was raised in a tradition. I went to Bible college. I was taught all about apologetics. I was taught that when non-believers have questions and you have answers, it's your responsibility to answer their questions. Listen, there's an answer to this question. Is it Jerusalem or Gerizim? Answer, Jerusalem. Period. Mic drop. Jesus moonwalks away from the well. Like, no. Here's what I love about this. There's an answer to the question she's asked and Jesus doesn't answer it. He answers her deflection with his own deflection. Like, that's not what we're here for. Like, you want to bring up mountains? No, 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 no. I want to talk about living water. And he doesn't answer a question that he actually could. Like, how useful is that lesson? Anyway. Yeah, and even he does his own kind of flip to the story where she's trying to flip this conversation to theology. He then asks her, well, where's your husband? Well, this is when the story starts to get a little too close to home for her. Wells in scripture, they are well known huh, for finding a mate. This happens and has happened in the scriptures multiple times. Yeah, Sarah uh, and Abraham send Eliezer out to get a wife for Isaac, which is actually Jacob's mother. Jacob then repeats that with his wife, Leah and Rachel here in this story. You have Moses and Zipporah in a very typical, uh, very similar story in Exodus. Like a very common theme about being at wells is men finding wives in the Bible, absolutely. Yes, and this passage of scripture is like heavy wedding talk. It is so thick with where are you finding your bride? And this is the conversation that Jesus brings up is, okay, tell me where your husband is at. And I can imagine in that moment that her head just drops. She's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. The guy you're with is not your husband and you've had five others. Maybe, maybe if, this woman is who we've thought she was this whole time. 
the shame enters her story and she goes, I've been found out. Because we know she goes back to the village and she says, Jesus knew everything about me. Well, this, the shame that she's feeling makes it feel like maybe she's not worthy of a miracle. Did you guys catch where Jesus was sitting and the verbiage from the Genesis story? I love it. It said he was sitting where the stone had been rolled away. Come on, you guys, that's so good. Jesus is sitting on top of the well, the stone that was rolled away. He's saying, yeah, I know, I know, those husbands that, that you have sought after, that you've chased after, maybe, the, maybe it's not her fault. Maybe it was him, maybe it was barrenness. We don't know, we have no idea why the shame but we do know that's what, how she identified herself. And here Jesus is, sitting at the well as the stone that was rolled away in Samaria at noon. This is so like Jesus, to show up in places that we don't expect him to when we don't, the timing. And he says, I wanna be your husband. Yeah, I don't have a bucket, but we all have buckets. Jesus, he doesn't need a bucket. What he offers can't be contained in this bucket, but I have a bucket. And this is where the woman at the well and my story are similar. This is my forever changed. Because in my life, I have gone to the wrong things to fill my bucket. I've gone to trying to find acceptance from friends, from relationships, to titles, to my job. I've let loss define me and change me. My failure, oh, I don't wanna fail. And I just start filling my bucket with these heavy things and golly, I keep adding more my performance that's how I find value. My relationships, ladies, our husbands were never meant to complete us. Our friends were never meant to find that satisfaction that our soul craves. And I put all of these things in my bucket and I, I lug them around and I think, oh, man, I sure wish that I had some relief I wanna feel good about myself. And when I approach Jesus, he says, there's not room. There's not room for me in your bucket. It's heavy and it's full. And Jesus, who sits on the stone that was rolled away, he says, you gotta dump those out. You gotta dump it out. Because the living water could fill this bucket and I could find satisfaction for everything that I need. He is the living water. Yeah. Uh, we fill our buckets trying to find that satisfaction, trying to find that thing that quenches our soul thirst with so many different things. 
There's another take on this, um, just really briefly, the research I bring to the table. Uh, there's a little bit, uh, there's a different take on who this woman at the well might have been in this story. Scholars have noted, and it's just a take, there's nothing in the scripture that really nails it for us. We don't know, but, but scholars have made some observations in this story. They said, man, you know, she, she knows an awful lot, doesn't she? Like this is a woman, like a shameful woman with five husbands and kind of like this cultural reject on the margins. If that's who she is, she knows an awful lot about Midrash, tradition, theology. She's engaging a Jewish rabbi on a pretty good substantive level, like at least as much as any of his disciples do. Like she's really doing something. So, so man, is there something more? She's, she's the, she has the ability to convince the whole town. Now, again, if this is just kind of like some marginal woman on the edge of, uh, of Sikhar, I don't know why she comes in and all of a sudden the town is like, well, let's go see what's going on. One of, the, one of the things we know about Samaritans, the Samaritans didn't have the Levitical priesthood that the Jews had at the temple in Jerusalem. They had to have their own Samaritan priesthood. And because of the way that they had mixed Assyrian idolatry, Assyrian idolatry with their own Jewish background, they had a, they had a female priestess, a very, at least a very present female presence in their priesthood. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is they often had priestesses where in Jer Jerusalem, you would only had male priests. They have female priestesses, priestesses. I don't know what I'm trying to say. But this, if that's her, this might explain why she's at the well at noon. This is what, this is whose well? Like this is like one of the most sacred sites at the foot of the holy sacred mountain. Like where would a priestess maybe gather? It would explain why she's so educated on the story. It would explain why the whole town comes out when she says, hey, come see this guy. They'd be like, whoa, priestess says go, let's go. The five, the five husbands, uh, the Samaritans worshiped, uh, not worship. the Samaritans studied and held to Torah as their holy book. The five books of Moses were the Samaritans' books. The, the scholars have suggested, are the five husbands she's been married to the books of Moses? And the husband that's not really her husband is actually her Samaritan worldview? Scholars have said it could be that this woman's not just some sexual deviant at a well. She could be incredibly educated. We don't know. But here's what I love about the possibility is all of a sudden I now relate to this story because some of us bring a bucket full of things that cause us shame, yes? It's where our insecurity lies in our loss, in our failure, our performance, all of those things that Emmy talked about. But then there's people that are different. And, and I feel like I resonate with this stack of rocks over here. You see, I, I love to know about my status. I love to know that I'm somebody that's appreciated and special and that people look up to as, oh, Marty's preaching today. So I put that in my bucket, okay, that's good. And, and I, I've spent a ton of time in the Bible, like getting training, and I spent time following great teachers over in Israel, and I know a lot, so I put that in my bucket. And then, and then I had my education. I spent four years at Bible college to make sure that when people look at me, they're like, oh, he's equipped to talk about the Bible. And, and then I love, oh, here's my title. I'm the president of a national nonprofit. That's CEO, in case you weren't listening. And... And, and then I, I, have, I love to have influence. I love, it's like, it's, like my, it's like my idol. I love to know that when I talk, it makes a difference. 
And so I put this in here too. Now see, these aren't things that cause shame. These are things that cause pride. And my bucket's now just as full. And my bucket, I'm actually breathing hard. <laughs> I need to do some work. Um, my bucket's it's just as exhausting as Emmy's bucket of shame. And pride and shame come from the same place. It's all built to cover up our insecurities. It's all how we're trying to get our living water. And so if you're in this place, if you're the person that struggles with the other end of the spectrum like I am, you have the same problem. And Jesus says, well, I can't, you're not gonna put much water in here, Emmy, living or otherwise. And Jesus says, well, you're gonna have to actually let go. Those aren't the things that define you either. Your shame's not what defines you, but neither is your accomplishments. It's like the two brothers in the prodigal son story, right? You had the brother that ran off and did all of his stuff, and then you have the one brother that stayed home and did it right the whole time. And the problem is, is they're both separated from the father. You see, if you're gonna actually fill up your bucket, you're gonna have to dump that stuff out too so that Jesus can give you living water. Uh, This is probably a good time uh, for us to get ready to head to the Lord's table. So I wanna invite our servers if they wanna go back. They're gonna deal out some bread and some juice here so we can go to the Lord's table and celebrate the Eucharist together. If you're visiting with us, we have an open table. That means if you wanna celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, you're welcome to join us. Just hang on to the bread, hang on to the juice, and we'll take it here in just a moment. While we do that, we're gonna go through some questions here today Uh, These questions are designed for your home group, for your accountability group. Questions are designed for the ride home, uh, for lunch. These questions are designed for your prayer journal. These questions are designed to help you take the sermon and actually make it more and more applicable uh, to where you're at in life. I need to catch my breath, Emmy. So how about you lead us through (laughs) the first Uh, The first question (laughs) is, who are the people you avoid interacting with? Where's your Samaria? Who are your Samaritan people? I love what Bob Goff says. Um, He says, it's hard to hate up close. You see, no matter who it is, where we're at, we're all people trying to find living water to fill our buckets. And maybe that's a misplaced search. Maybe they're not kind of person you want to interact with because there's so many rocks in their bucket and they can't keep going. What would it take to offer the opportunity to dump their bucket and out of the wellspring of our buckets, the living water that Jesus is offering us, to go extend and just pour a little into their bucket? The second question we have is where are you going to find fulfillment for your deep desires? Where are you going? Is it at the well that Jesus sits? Is it at the stone that was rolled away? Because the well where Jesus sits is deep and it's full of provision. If you're not taking your bucket to the well, that Jesus offers the living water to, you're just filling up your bucket with heavy rocks. Yeah. A lot of things make that list for me, things that I'm trying to meet those desires with. And they just don't satisfy. They don't, 
They don't fill, <laughs> they don't fill my spiritual bucket at all, even though I'm convinced. I just keep pouring it in there and it just never quite does the job. Third question, are you defining yourself by your brokenness, your achievement, or your encounter with Jesus? Like there's so many things to define ourselves by. Whether it's the shame that we carry around and we wear our insecurity like a sleeve, uh, like, a, like on our sleeve is what I meant to say, or like a sleeve, sure. But we, we take our insecurity and we let all those things about how we've let our parents down and we, all, all the stuff about who we, we're letting ourselves down and all the things we wanted to be and all the mistakes that we've made and we have these horrible chapters that we've written. We let those things define us or it's the opposite. It's the other bucket. It's all the things that we've accomplished and yet neither one of those things is going to be the thing that we want to identify ourselves with except for that encounter. For those of us that have met Jesus, that has changed our identity. Our well story, whatever our story is at our well, whatever bucket that we've carried around and how that bucket's been filled, that actually is the thing that redefines who we are with all of our mistakes and our brokenness or all of our work and our, all of our accomplishments. It doesn't mean anything without being redefined and reshaped and recast in what Jesus has done with our life. Which brings me to the last question, which is what is your story what is your story? Have you had a forever changed moment with Jesus? And you heard Josh talk about that card as you leave the sanctuary, that little spot there in the connection corner. What, what is your story? And can you share it? Like if we're gonna be a group of people, that ha- what's our mission? To reach the world for Jesus? One person at a time. If that's who we are, it's going to be hard to do that if we can't share our story. I can remember one of, our, one of my first freshman level Bible college classes was called like Personal Evangelism 128. Um, and, and it was all designed, at, one of the sections of the entire class was learning how to share a testimony and help other people craft theirs, which seemed like, why are we wasting time with this? Only to discover, I didn't know how to tell my story. Like not well, it was like this rambling mess of weirdness. Not that you have to be trained because of the Samaritan woman that went into Samaria have a bunch of training on how to share her story. No, she just went and did it. She just went and did it. But are you prepared? Are you ready to share a story? Is a story vibrant and alive enough that it's going to come out of you when you head back into town? Is it something that you live with, that you wrestle with, that you're ready to share? Because if we're going to be the people that we want to be, we're going to have to share our stories. Yeah. And I love that at this moment, when we can hold this in our hand, this is our story. This is again God showing up at the well, saying, I have everything you need. I'm enough. This is for us individually. This is our story. This is our story corporately, that we get to do this as a family. So on that night, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that was so given up for you with so much love. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Let's remember. Father, I thank you that you sit as the stone that was rolled away and that you offer um, this living water that, um, that we get to fill our buckets up with, Lord. So God, I just pray that as we, um, we worship one more time, that we would just dump our buckets in front of you.
and that we would allow our identity of who you say we are, that we are your, we are your child, to just fill our bucket up. God, thanks for your love. You're a great God. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.